We've got Bitcoin. Oh yeah, and some Bernanke, some Moynihan, and of course, a little bit of JP Morgan. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Wednesday. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This year is David Hansen. Sorry to all of our loyal podcast listeners that the podcast was not up yesterday. We had some technical difficulties. Hopefully, when you hear, are hearing this, it is in fact Wednesday mm-hmm. and not Thursday. And yesterday, yesterday's is up now. So yesterday's is up now. Got so listen to them both. Yeah, there you yes, go. Yes, you get you get double double the action. Uh, David, I saw that Channing Tatum is doing a parody mm-hmm. of Jean-Claude Van Damme's now famous splits on the Volvo trucks. Are you next? Are, are you gonna are you gonna do that? I did see that, and I think I would probably end it the same way that he did. He was writhing in pain on the ground, and I don't think my body does that. When is the last time you did a split? Never. It's impossible You've never done a split? No, have <laughs> you? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, my body doesn't work that way. No, not so much. All right, let's get to the, <laughs> let's get to the real headlines. Uh, first one today is from Bloomberg. Bernanke signals Fed target rate to stay low after QE. I'm going to read a little bit from the article here. The target for the Fed funds rate is likely to remain near zero for a considerable period of time after the asset purchases end, perhaps well after. That was Bernanke speaking. Uh, Bloomberg writes, the jobless rate breaches the Fed's, oh, that it will continue after the Mm -hmm. jobless rate breaches the Fed's 6.5% threshold. Uh, And then Bernanke continued that they will need a preponderance of data before moving accommodation. Good word. Preponderance, you like that? Yeah, I like it. That's Bernanke, man. That's <laughs> smart. That's that's why we've got him. Yeah. What's going to happen when Yellen steps in? Is she going to use I words hope she, like that? Well, she's from academia too, so hopefully she's got a good vocabulary. She but this is. isn't a big surprise. I mean, we knew they were going to keep rates low, and this basically means if you've got a bank account out there, don't expect a lot of interest coming in on your savings account. But but for the banks, it's nice to have the low short-term rates and higher long-term rates. So for the banks out there, I think they're fine with this, right? Would you say so? Ish. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, it could be good. I guess we'll have to see how it works out. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Bernanke is trying to make the environment as predictable as possible uh, because I, there's been so much talk and fear and worry about the taper and then what happens after the taper when interest rates start rising and what effect that'll have on the government. I think the bottom line, though, is can this help the economy? Because that's why, that's why Bernanke and the Fed want to keep rates mm-hmm. low because they think it'll help spur the economy. I, I don't know that it will. It's the best that they can do. It's the best that Fed can do with monetary policy. I still continue to think that the government needs to to do something to help st- uh, stimulate the economy or at least not continue to cut jobs and, and be worrying about the debt right now. That would be ideal. Moving on to the next headline. So says us. Not everybody agrees with that. Yeah, that's true. Moving on to the next headline. A little happy news for Bank of America. Moynihan brings Bank of America shares back to where he started as CEO. So can, can we agree this is a patently ridiculous headline? It's not that ridiculous. Moynihan brings B of A shares back. Okay, it wasn't just him. Well, he, <laughs> he doesn't control the shares. CEOs don't control the shares of a company. The company doesn't control shares of the company. The market does whatever it does. It well, moves the stock around all over the place. Moynihan didn't have anything to do with what the shares did. Okay, fair enough. Kind of. Indirect way. Um, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been an interesting road for Moynihan here. This isn't the high that the shares have been under his supervision here. I think the high was back in April of 2010. They're around $20 a share. So not back to the high there, but made some progress here. We saw the Berkshire Hathaway investment in late 2008, late summer, to, or 2011, sorry. 
Um, and since then, it's kind of been an easier, an easier road for, for Bank of America. They've checked some lawsuits off the list here. So slowly getting back to normal. I'd still like to see a little bit more out of Moynihan from the operational perspective. We haven't seen him be the greatest operator. We've seen him been a, a great kind of lawsuit fighter. Not so much on the operation side. Scaled back the mortgage business at the wrong time. $5 debit fee. Wasn't implemented, but the fact that they put it out there got a lot of pushback on that. I haven't seen anything from him from an operational perspective that says, wow, this guy really is taking the bank in a great, great place. In all seriousness, this headline is, it, to me, it's a great example of people focusing on the wrong things. Moynihan took over at the beginning of 2010, so fiscal 2009 was the last year without Moynihan. The profit for Bank of America in 2009 was $6.3 billion. The profit over the last 12 months, $8.7 billion. Non-performing loans in 2007 for Bank of America, 4.4% of total loans, 2.2% over the last 12 months. Tangible book value per share, $11.09 at the end of 2009, $13.41 now. That's what investors should be focusing on. What, what has happened to the company? What has happened to the value, the underlying value of the company under Moynihan? Not what did the shares do. I mean, eventually that, that matters because that's the returns that we get. But that should follow the progress of the company. That's fair. Uh, I agree. Yeah, of but, course it's fair. But do, do you disagree that we haven't seen anything from him that, that shows that he's a great operator for the next 10 years for this business? I, I, don't, I don't think that this has been an environment where... Where he can you, kind of show that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's been way more important about shoring up the balance sheet and, and securing an investment from Berkshire mm-hmm. Hathaway. That's a pretty big feather in his cap. And it's also been about getting through the lawsuits. Those two things alone... Were really had to be the biggest priorities for Brian Moynihan so far. I think as we looked at, look ahead, I, I think, yes, we have to see some of that. But even now, there's still the convincing, convincing investors, convincing regulators that this is a sound bank and continuing to get through the lawsuits. It's not over yet. Like, we're in the later innings of that, but it's still not over. All right. Third headline. Speaking of lawsuits, we got J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan and its victims. This, yesterday, we, we've, we had the $13 billion settlement officially go through. I went to a place where I usually don't go, and that's the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. Um, but, but I thought that this, that this column made some interesting points. First of all, you've got the fact that J.P. Morgan is, is paid out this huge sum, this $13 billion, for harming a number of different entities, including other banks. Mm -hmm. And what the Justice Department made clear in their press release is that they're not done going after big banks. So if you put the two and two together there, big banks were buying defective mortgages from big banks and getting harmed by them while creating defective mortgages and selling them to other big banks for which they should be be fined and sued for. So now the government's going to go after victims of J.P. Morgan, most likely. Exactly. So the supposed uh, unknowing victims of J.P. Morgan's uh, horrible uh, misdeeds were themselves the perpetrators of basically the same misdeed, which is kind of confusing. The other thing which is a little bit confusing is that $4 billion of the $13 billion is going to help consumers, Mm -hmm. consumers who are struggling with their their home payments, that sort of thing, which sounds great. And, And to some extent, that's laudable. That's nice. Get, get some money out there. But what does that have to do with this? Mm-hmm. This is about J.P. Morgan packaging 
Um, I should say J.P. Morgan and these other entities, which I'll touch on in a moment, uh, Washington Mutual and Bear Stearns, packaging uh, mortgages, selling them off, and and having those uh, those mortgages go bad. So it wasn't. This isn't really about consumers. So to have four billion dollars of the thirteen billion dollars go to consumers, a little bit confusing. Uh, One one thing about the four billion that goes to consumers for any accounting nerds out there. That $4 billion is not coming out of the legal reserves. That $4 billion will be from the provisions line. So if anyone's looking at the numbers and a big accounting wonk, that's where those numbers are kind of lining up on the income statement. So then moving on, this, this comes from the Justice Department's press release as opposed to the Wall Street Journal uh, opinion page. But the U.S. District Attorney for Pennsylvania said it is particularly important that J.P. Morgan, after assuming the significant assets of Washington Mutual Bank, is now also held responsible for the unscrupulous and de- deceptive conduct of Washington Mutual, one of the biggest players in the mortgage-backed securities market. Now, considering uh, once you've hashed out what the agreement was of J.P. Morgan taking over Washington Mutual. Yes, maybe J.P. Morgan should have been held accountable for it, but it is particularly important that J.P. Morgan be held accountable. I don't know that I really agree with that. Is it really particularly important that we hold J.P. Morgan accountable for Washington Mutual when really it's kind of swooped in and and helped take over a failing institution that otherwise could have been uh, a much bigger failure for the economy? I don't know whether I necessarily agree with that. And then you've got another, another good quote here. Uh, we've got today as a result of our coordinated investigations, we are holding accountable one of the financial institutions that by breaking those rules helped cause the economic crisis that brought the nation to its knees. Sounds good. It's real fighting words mm-hmm. there. But are they really held, holding the right people accountable? As I've argued here time and again, I don't think they are. Hold the people accountable that were actually taking these actions. But taking $13 billion out of the pockets of today's J.P. Morgan shareholders, mm-hmm. don't know what that really does to stop it the next time around. Finally, back to the, J- to, the, to the Wall Street Journal opinion pages. It finishes by saying there's an old joke that no good deed goes unpunished. That's now Obama, uh, that's now Obama administration policy. Here's where I part from, from this opinion <laughs> A little piece. extreme. Yeah, it's a little bit extreme. There, there's been this <clears throat> feeling that the Obama administration has been going after J.P. Morgan and that J.P. Morgan did this really good deed by taking over Washington Mutual and Bear Stearns, and now they're being punished for it. And and I think that's been pretty, pretty roundly debunked. Mm-hmm. When, when the deal was struck for Bear Stearns and Washington Mutual, J.P. Morgan thought it was getting a good deal. It thought it had dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and it was going to make out like a bandit on those deals. Now it's paying out a little bit more than it thought. Yeah. So uh, moving on to our focus for the day. That's right. Got a little Bitcoin. We literally have a little we Bitcoin. We literally have some Bitcoin. Last night <clears throat> we, got, we got approval from our, from our higher-ups, to go ahead out and buy some Bitcoin for The Motley Fool. So The Motley Fool now owns 0.12 Bitcoins. What better way to learn than to, than to try? Exactly, exactly. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a particularly easy process, was it? It was not. Um, I had figured, so your, your preferred website was, is Mt. Gox, right? For, for well, I, I kind of recognize that as the the most used exchange of these Bitcoins. So that's kind of where I default if I'm curious about what Bitcoin is doing. So, so since you had been checking prices for us on Mt. Gox, checking the, the Bitcoin prices there, that was my first stop to, to try to pick up some, mm-hmm. some Bitcoin. Unfortunately, Mt. Gox 
as far as I could tell, it requires that you use a bank account if you want to deposit U.S. Ba- uh, dollars in there. It requires that you attach a bank account to it. And I wasn't about to use my personal bank account, and uh, the company gave us a credit card to use. Mm-hmm. So I had to move on. So I found a website called Virtual World Exchange. And this was thanks to – I found another website that had a whole instruction sheet on how you can buy Bitcoin with a credit card. And, was, and even if we just stop there and think about the hurdles of getting this to the masses, you're not going to be the only one that's going to be hesitant to put their credit – or the, their bank account information oh, yeah. onto Mt. Gox. Gox. Yes, Mt. Gox is maybe the most reputable, and I use quote fingers there for most reputable. There have been multiple exchanges that have shut down and kind of just been – Okay, we're gone. Sorry. Yeah. So that's a hurdle right there, the fact that you had to go search to find another way to even get these things. Right. And, I mean, maybe – I forget whether you or somebody else mentioned this, but maybe you can set up a whole different – like a separate bank account mm-hmm. just, to, just to do right. this. But then that's a whole another, a whole other ordeal. So using this instruction list I found, I found Virtual World Exchange, which you can use a credit card there. The problem is that Virtual World Exchange does not let you – directly buy Bitcoin with U.S. dollars. But what they let you do is they let you buy Second Life Linden. So Second Life is, a, is an online world, and I, Linden is the, the Linden is the virtual currency used by Second Life. So you can, of course. Who, knows, who doesn't know that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Second Life Linden. So you can deposit U.S. dollars using a credit card, and they limit you to $104 per day. Mm-hmm. Which which is a little bit uh, which is a little bit difficult because a Bitcoin is about six hundred fifty dollars now. So at the start, you're not going to be able to buy a whole Bitcoin. So you deposit U.S. dollars at Virtual World Exchange, and then exchange them for Second Life Linden, and then you can take the Second Life Linden and exchange that for Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. The problem with that, though, is that when you deposit money at Virtual World Exchange, they charge you fees, and those fees racked up to more than four dollars. So by the time we had the money deposited, we had a little bit less than $100. And then we took the $99 and change. Actually, couldn't use the change. So we took the $99 and exchanged that for Second Life Linden. Mm-hmm. And I got, I don't know, thousands, some thousands of Second Life Linden. Uh, but we were charged a fee there. So you had to pay 50 Second Life Linden as part of the fee and then 2.9% of the transaction. And then take the thousands of Second Life Linden, exchange that for the 0.12 Bitcoin, more fees there, another 50 Second Life Linden plus 2.9% of the transaction. So by the time we were done with it, we had paid more than $10 in, in fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's U.S. dollars, not, not Second Life Linden or Bitcoin. $10 in fees. And when I went back and looked, the exchange rate that we had gotten on the Bitcoin, since Bitcoin is flying all over the place right now, the exchange rate, was fairly high and has fallen significantly since yesterday. So right now... In our account at Virtual World Exchange, we have 87 cents in U.S. currency. We have, I think, about 1,600 Second Life Linden, which is worth in the range of like $7. Mm-hmm. And then we have 0.12 Bitcoin. So add it all up, and the total value in U.S. dollars is about $77. So we started with $104. We now have about $77 worth of various currencies, mostly in Bitcoin. Um, it was a headache. It, maybe there are, maybe there are better ways to do this. And mm-hmm. if you're if you're exchanging in Bitcoin all the time, certainly it's a lot easier. If you're not trying to convert between U.S. dollars and Bitcoin, that's easier. Um, but it seems to me from this first experience that there is a long way for Bitcoin to go in terms of 
being easy to use as a currency and, and, and being able to exchange it. Right, and that's not a, a huge surprise, right? I mean, the Bitcoin craze is here, and we've seen the prices going crazy. But that doesn't mean we're going to snap our fingers and Bitcoin's going to be this currency that's so easy to use and everybody accepts it and it's all fun. It's not going to be that way for a long, long time. I'm Dave. waiting for the fun. I just wanted the you fun. You want the fun. I, I wanted we the all fun, want the David. Fun. Uh, <laughs> sounds like one of those at and commercials. I want, want I want the fun now. Um, so, so I yeah, got the Bitcoin. Now I want the fun. It's going to be a very long runway before we get this into a kind of easy way of doing business or getting Bitcoin. We're not there yet. I know everyone wants us to be there yet, but... There hasn't been the investment in certain sites to do this. There hasn't been the security, the legitimacy of everything. So it's just going to take a while. And I'm still on the side that thinks Bitcoin could be something. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of these people that's saying, oh, it's all, they're all idiots out there that own Bitcoin. I don't think that at all. But I just think it's going to be a very long process. And if, you're, if you think that this is going to change the world tomorrow, I think you're wrong there. Are you going to take a while. Are you going to spend this coming weekend mining Bitcoin? I will not. Mm-hmm. I'll learn more about it. I mean, it's an interesting spot, but I'm not putting a ton of my capital behind it yet, but I think it does have potential. I just, I just want the fun. There you All go. right, let's move on to the mailbag. We've got, of course, our email address that readers can uh, email us, mm-hmm. questions, comments, whatever you want. It's WTMI at fool.com. And we've got an email question for today. This comes from Mike. He says, my question is, do you buy different stocks in taxable and tax-free deferred accounts because of taxes? We all know we all know that uh, we don't let the tail, wag, the tail wag the dog, but sometimes taxes are a big issue, especially for high-income individuals and or residents in high-tax states. I tend to be more opportunistic and trade more often in tax-free and deferred accounts. For instance, because I thought AIG was more undervalued than Berkshire Hathaway, I sold Berkshire Hathaway to buy AIG in my IRA, but kept Berkshire Hathaway in the taxable account. Now, first of all, I should note that I would love to be one of those high-tax individuals that has to worry about that sort of thing. Fortunately, I'm not in that group. Uh, David, is this something that you do? Do you think about the tax implications of your investments uh, based on where you're making them in your, in your taxed accounts versus your tax-free or deferred tax accounts? I think it's a thought that I consider, but and I sorry, don't. before you answer, I, I should point out that we're not tax experts. No, we, we, are not. we follow financial stocks, and, and that, that is our forte. But continue. We'll, we'll listen to what you say. Anyway. It's de- I think he's definitely smart to consider. You should always consider, I mean, do what you can do to, to minimize the taxes there in a legal way in, in terms of trading and accounts. But I don't think about it too much. And I think it's very hard to say, okay, I think AIG is more undervalued than Berkshire. So I think it has bigger upside. So I'm going to put it in the tax deferred account because I'm going to have bigger gains on it. I think that's hard to do because then we're getting down to predicting our exact success with a certain stock mm-hmm. there. So I think if you have a Roth IRA or a regular IRA, you should definitely take advantage of those. But don't get too – I wouldn't get too into trying to to pick and choose which account I'm trading in. Um, I don't know. I think it may may be a headache that's ultimately not worth um, the payout. Uh, definitely to consider it, but I wouldn't spend hours and hours trying, trying to do it. How, how do you approach it? Sure. We, we talked about this a little bit before, and, and one of the things that I think about is uh, diversifying, uh, tax diversification, tax planning diversification, that you don't really know what the tax rate is and what the, what the tax system is going to be 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So it's nice to be able to have investments in, in that have different tax implications. So whether it be a Roth IRA, whether it be a, 401, a true 401k with deferred taxes, or whether it just be a straight up taxed account, mm-hmm. uh, it can be nice to distribute your money between that. 
but but using those accounts, trying to pick and choose between those accounts, um, I, I think, like you said, it's it's interesting to th- to think about if if you if you really think that there's going to be a difference, um, maybe take that into consideration. But it's not foremost in my mind, and and, and the thing that that comes to mind when when I think about that is. Um, it was Buffett. Yeah, it was Buffett who said this. When there was all the concern about the government tax rate, and he was essentially saying, I think his, his quote was something along the lines of, if I call you up in the middle of the night and I say, I've got the best investment idea that, that I've ever had in my entire life, is your first question going to be, yes, but what's the tax rate on it? Right. So it's kind, it's kind of the same thing here. Not, not exactly the same, but kind of the same thing here. Um, for, for me, the, the uh, top consideration is, how am I choosing my investments? Do I have the right investments? And then after that, how do I distribute those among different tax strategies? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I could do better by thinking more about how I'm distributing amongst, amongst tax strategies. But to be honest, most of what I have is in tax-advantaged uh, accounts. Mm-hmm. So that's where it's all ending up anyway for the most part. Um, but I think Mike's got a good point that it's something that you can consider when you're deciding where you're buying your different stocks. Also, I think like 90% of our listeners are named Mike. That's like the fifth question we've yeah. answered from we, Mike. Yeah, we, we love Mike. So keep them rolling in, WTMI at fool.com. Yeah, Mike, all the Mikes and everybody else. We love the Mikes. All right, game for the day. We've got some rankings here. And today we're ranking consumer finance companies. So this covers, this covers a relatively broad array. It's kind of a mishmash of companies mm-hmm. from credit card companies to uh, brokerages, internet brokerages, um, and pawn shops, a lot of different types of companies here. Yep. David, what are your top five rankings in the world of consumer finance? I didn't go pawn shops. I'm sorry. I don't have any pawn shops in my top five Could've. of rankings. But here they are. My rankings are number one, eBay. Number two, Discover. Number three, Visa. Number four, MasterCard. Number five, American Express. And I will say that American Express is the only stock that I own on this list. So I'm not saying that I dislike American Express. It's just my fifth favorite right now. And number one, eBay. Some people are saying, eBay, what are, you, what are you talking about? It's not consumer finance. Of course, they have the PayPal business there. But even the marketplace business, we don't talk about a lot, but it's not Amazon. It's not growing at the rate Amazon is, but it's still in a growing market when we talk about online retail. It's still doing well. The marketplace business is doing well. PayPal, doing very well. Our, added 17% more users last quarter, have over 100 million PayPal users there. Can think that will continue to grow. And the valuation Looks very, very reasonable today. So I like the business. I like the valuation. That's why eBay gets my number one. What do you say? There you go. We can go ahead and get my rankings up there. I've got Discover as number one. I've got Portfolio Recovery Associates number two, Visa number three, eBay number four, and MasterCard number five. Discover is my number one. Uh, it, it is not the business that Visa or MasterCard is or even American Express today. But in terms of opportunity, I think there's a lot of opportunity ahead of, of Discover. Um, the, the assets and the operations that it has in place, I think, are very valuable. And you don't have to pay nearly the valuation for Discover that you do for any of its competitors. Uh, the number two there, that, that might not be a name that, that is familiar to a lot of people, Portfolio uh, Recovery Associates. The, basically, what the company does is it buys off charged-off debt from finance companies, mm-hmm. and then it goes and collects on that debt and 
they're just really, really good. The company is really, really good at what it does. It knows how to price charged off portfolios. It knows how to collect on those portfolios. And it earns very, very attractive returns on the assets that it buys. And it's performed tremendously well. It's not as cheap as it has been in the past, but I don't think it's at an unreasonable valuation right now. Do you own any of these companies? I do not know, own any of them, no. I, so, wish, I, wish I, owned, I, I wish I owned Portfolio Recovery. In the past or today? Probably both. I probably should own it today. I sure wish I owned it in the past. Discover has been on my... Discover and Visa, I, I keep talking about, like, I got to own, own both of these, and I don't. So I don't know what's, I don't know what's holding me back. But, uh, but those are two that... The, actually, all three of those at the top... Uh, I'd like to own those. Uh, eBay, it's it's all about the PayPal business. Love that business. I'm on the fence. It, at some point, it's got to come down to you can't own everything. Mm-hmm. And the eBay-PayPal combo just hasn't quite pushed me far enough yet. Um, and MasterCard, better valuation than Visa, maybe more growth opportunity than Visa. But I prefer Visa over it because Visa is just more dominant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think there's the, the potential for Visa just to keep dominating MasterCard uh, into the future. Mm-hmm. And my, my number five was American Express. I said I own it. I love the business. I continue to like the business. Just looks a little rich today. That's it. I think it's one, one for radar, your radar that has a big sell-off or something like that. I think it may be one to be a little bit more aggressive with. But right today, a little rich. All right, let's close out in the Twitter sphere. And I think we've only got two tweets today, which is good because we're running mm-hmm. low on time. What is the first tweet, David? first tweet is from the Financial Times at Financial Times. Investment bank profitability under fire. And it links out to an article there. It's referring to a study from McKinsey saying the top 13 or the 13 largest investment banks are less profitable than the small competitors. And my first thought was, oh my God, is it Evercore? They're sitting pretty here. <laughs> uh, I think it continues to support that the smaller investment banks that can be more focused on just the advisory business, the Green Hills, the Evercore, they do have a place in this market. I'm continuing to stand by that opinion. No, you're, do you own Evercore yet? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. All right. Just so. promoting that. <laughs> yeah, no, you are like the number one fan of Evercore. All right. Tweet number two here, our last tweet of the day. This is from our own Brian Richards. Uh, his uh, Twitter handle is at Brian L. Richards. He goes, from way back, the top 100 websites of 1999 via POV Magazine. And this links out to... Um, to, to the magazine article. And, of course, he notes the Motley Fool 23rd on that list back in 1999. Um, Did you write down the top five? I wrote them down. I didn't write down the top five, but we'll go ahead and read the top five. The top five were Broadcast.com, MP3.com, Amazon.com, Den.com. I don't even know what that is. And ESPN.com. Okay, so I, I, here are the notes that I made. St- sites that I still use today, Amazon.com, number three on that list. ESPN.com, number five on that list. How else would I check my mm-hmm. fantasy football? Google, number 93 on that list. Coming just six spots ahead of BlairWitch.com. Right, exactly. <laughs> and way below Motley Fool. Not using today's sites that I'm not no longer using today. Ask Jeeves, number 14. Wet Feet, which is like a, an employment site that probably had to do with my age at the time. Number 44 at the time. And then my comment here was, what? <laughs> and what? that, that applies to den.com at what number four. Never, never used it. And onebox.com at number nine. No idea what those No are. idea on either of those. Very interesting. All right, folks. That is the show for today. Uh, be sure to check us out on iTunes if you haven't already. And give us a rating. You like the show. 
give us a, you know, four stars, five, five stars. stars. Yeah, five four stars. stars. Let's, yeah. Go, let's go five. Five stars. Five stars for David. Four stars for me. Five stars for David. Uh, you can email us, d, uh, WTMI at fool.com. We're on Twitter, at TMF Financials. And that's all I've got. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.